Should Christians be pro-guns? This is the Deep Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Thompson, a pastor and writer from Parts Unknown. Well, normally I give my location there, but maybe for this episode, I'm going to leave it out because I think this might be one of the more controversial topics I've tackled in quite some time. Now, before we dive into that topic, as I've mentioned in the last couple of episodes, the church I pastor, which is Valley Baptist Church in unnamed city, California, is hosting a Reasons to Believe weekend June 24th through 26th with Dr. Mike Lacona, who is the author of several books on the resurrection and apologetics. He's an online debater of atheists and agnostics and skeptics. You can find him all over YouTube. And he's also, of course, a college professor. We would love for you to join us June 24th through 26th for that conference. And a link to sign up to come join us is on our website, which is deepquestionspod.com. Just go to deepquestionspod.com, look up guns or anything like that, and you will find this episode, and uh, you can sign up and come hang out with us and hear Dr. Lacona teach. I am also delighted to let you know that sometime in a future episode very soon, Dr. Lacona will be joining us on this show, so stay tuned for that. C.S. Lewis wrote, When souls become wicked, they will certainly use this possibility to hurt one another, and this perhaps accounts for four-fifths of the sufferings of men. It is men, not God, who have produced racks, whips, prisons, slavery, guns, bayonets, and bombs. It is by human avarice or human stupidity, not by the churlishness of nature, that we have poverty and overwork. Well, today we are going to wrestle with a very important and very timely question regarding guns and firearms. Should Christians be vocal proponents of gun ownership? Should Christians loudly and obviously support the cause of guns? I'm going to go ahead and give you my thesis right up front, but then after that, we're going to unpack it for a bit before you get into the real meat of the topic in the scripture. Please don't rage quit this episode, or if you're reading an article, right after you hear my perspective. Please allow me to encourage you to listen throughout the episode because I'm going to be arguing from Scripture, clear Bible teaching, and I'm going to try to avoid arguing from my own opinion. If you want to disagree with me, then I'd ask you to do the same thing. I want to hear your Bible-based, Scripture-based reasons for disagreement and not something like uh, what many would call common sense or uh, political stances or anything like that. Now, look, this isn't a political podcast, and I'm really not going to make a political argument about guns today, but rather a biblical one. And you might be surprised that the Bible has a lot to say to Christians about, well, not a lot to say about guns, but about weapons, at least. And I think that translates. Here's my thesis. In light of the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament as a whole, it is incongruous that Christians should advocate for guns. In other words, based on what the Bible says, it's incompatible with Christianity that we should loudly advocate for guns. And before we dive too deep, I do need to tell you that I've been working on this episode for about five days now, uh, beginning about May 29th, 2022, up until June the 2nd, which is when I'm 
speaking this. In that time, there have been 29 mass shooting events in the United States, not including a tragedy today involving three shooting deaths at a church in Ames, Iowa. By my count, we have had 269 mass shooting events in the United States, which is defined as a single event where four or more people are shot at the same incident at roughly the same time. So actually, the Ames church shooting today, though horrific and tragic, is not an official mass shooting event, according to most reckonings. That number, again, in case I blurred over it, 269 mass shooting events up until this point, June 2nd of 2022. Let that number sink in. We are currently at day 152 of the year as I record this. So we are in the United States of America averaging well above one mass shooting incident per day in the United States. That's astounding. When you go back and look at the records, and it's very possible that they weren't as thoroughly kept uh, back in the day as they are now, but Wikipedia lists 22 mass shooting incidents for the entire decade of the 1980s and 30 for all of the 1990s. That means that it is glaringly obvious that the incidences of mass shootings are dramatically on the rise in the U.S. And of course, I do realize it's possible that some of those in the past are underreported. Now, before we dive into the scripture to see how we can apply the New Testament to guns and how the Bible might inform our position on guns, allow me to share five building blocks and clarifications that led to my thesis. And again, I'll repeat my thesis. In light of the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament as a whole, it is incompatible or incongruous that Christians should advocate for guns. All right, so number one, in saying that, I am not making a legal argument or a political argument or a pragmatic kind of crime argument. I don't intend today to, on this episode, debate the merits of the Second Amendment or anything like that. Look, politics are important, but that's not where this piece is coming from. My own politics are really pretty simple. I'm firmly pro-life and opposed to abortion, and I will do my best to make a case for a pro-life in an upcoming episode from the Scripture. I myself will not vote for a pro-choice candidate, period. Now, that doesn't mean I will vote for any old pro-life candidate either. Uh, Character matters. Behavior matters. Honor matters. Temperament matters. Wisdom matters. I expect a lot out of a leader, and honestly, I have not been overly impressed with our national leaders of late. Being pro-life is not enough to earn my vote. Now, all of that is immaterial to what we're discussing today because this is neither a political nor legal argument. I'm not particularly personally in favor of abolishing the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution, nor do I trust our government or any other government to be the only ones having guns. I myself am a gun owner. I don't have an arsenal. I've got a couple of guns. First gun I bought was in 1991 at a gun store in Hoover, Alabama, and that store had a sign up in the window that said, when guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. 
You know, honestly, I think there might be some truth to that argument, considering that there are approximately 400 million guns in the United States. Some of those guns are in the hands of good, legal, and law-abiding people, and some are in the hands of people who consider themselves outside of the law. If the government spent the next 25 years trying to confiscate all guns from all people in the United States of America, I suspect that they would gather a much higher percentage of the guns belonging to the law-abiding crowd over the outlaw crowd, and I'm not sure that changing the ratio of gun ownership between the good guys and the bad guys is a great idea. That said, I'm not going to be making that kind of an argument here, and I do know other countries have seen real and genuine drops in gun-related homicides when various programs were enacted to get less guns off of the street. Uh, This seems to me to be uh, pretty statistically inarguable. Now, I further understand that the United Kingdom passed some pretty stringent gun control laws in 1996 after a horrible school shooting at Dunblane Primary School in 1996. They have not, in the United Kingdom, had a school shooting since 1996, and there have been... 60 multi-fatality school shootings in the United States since then, and somewhere, the numbers are different, I've seen different numbers across the board, somewhere around 240 to 300-ish school shootings total since 1996. In other words, since 96, the UK has had zero school shootings after they tightened up some of their gun laws. The United States has had hundreds. This is an astounding statistic that more Americans should be well aware of, and it's really very difficult to argue against. By the way, did you know that school shootings in the U.S. did not start with Columbine in 1999? There were 22 multi-fatality school shootings in the United States in the 1990s before Columbine. There were 15 in the 1980s. There were six in the 1970s and five in the 1960s, including the University of Texas rampage, where 18 people were killed and 31 injured by a sniper firing from the observation tower of the main building at University of Texas. There was only one multi-fatality school shooting in the 1950s, one in the 40s, and one in the 30s. People in the United States should be aware of our long history of gun violence, especially in our schools. And honestly, we should know how much of an outlier we are in the world. I don't think it has to be this way. In fact, I think the Second Amendment can be kept quite intact. And I'm quite sure that the United States can pass wise laws that will ultimately curb gun violence. But again, this is not the main argument I'm making here in this article and its accompanying podcast. Uh, one little side note, I do believe that the police and military should be armed and that passages like Romans 13.4 indicate that the police and military should be armed. It says, uh, Romans 13.4 says, for it, the governing authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So yeah, arm the police, arm the military. Uh, That is good and biblical. All right, plank number two, point number two, or building block and clarification number two that leads to my ultimate thesis that Christians should not be pro-gun. 
Many Christians in America tend to confuse conservative politics with Christianity. My friends, the two are not the same. Many conservatives have a war cry that goes something like this, God, guns, and country, or God, guns, and family, something along those lines. We had a Georgia gubernatorial candidate named Candace Taylor who ran her campaign with the slogan, Jesus, Guns, and Babies, presumably indicating that she supports Jesus and is pro-life and pro-gun, three sentiments that many conservatives would heartily agree with. Miss Taylor promised this. She said, elect me governor of Georgia, and I will bring the satanic regime to its knees and demolish the Georgia Guidestones. Well, you know what? I kind of agree with her that the Georgia Guidestones are kind of sus, as the kids say. I do wonder how she will bring any sort of satanic regime to its knees, especially given that she only won 3% of or so of the vote. Interestingly, a March 2016 Pooler Magazine cover story on a guy named Marty Daniel, who is the founder of Daniel Defense, who is a gun maker. In fact, they are the gun maker who made the DD-4 rifle that was used by Salvador Ramos in the Uvalde school master uh, massacre. That article from 2016 was titled Faith, Family, and Firearms. Well, here's the big question. Do United States Republican values or U.S. conservative values always line up with biblical values? The answer is a quite resounding no, they do not. And honestly, it's dangerous to conflate the two things. Now, of course, democratic liberal values do not line up with biblical values either. And though I agree that the Republican Party positions on social issues tend to align closer with biblical values than do the democratic positions on the same, this still does not mean that Republican values are Christian values. Specifically, on this episode and the next, I intend to make the case from Scripture that gun advocacy and New Testament teaching are incongruous with each other. They don't match up. Now, this might be a good time to mention that Democratic liberals in the United States seem to consider conservatives hated enemies instead of merely ideological opponents. The same is true, perhaps more so, with conservatives and their views of liberals. If you are a Christian who is also politically conservative, let me challenge you. Liberals, Democrats, they are not your enemy from a biblical perspective. They are your mission field. Your job, of course, isn't to win them to the Republican Party. Your job is to winsomely and truthfully share the good news of Jesus with them. The Bible says that Christians do not fight against flesh and blood. Now, that said, if I haven't convinced you and you are absolutely concrete in your view that Democrats are the enemy, then do allow me to remind us all that Jesus tells Christians in Matthew 5 to love their enemies and to pray for their enemies. And in Luke 6, Jesus tells Christians to do good to those who hate us. Okay, yeah, I guess I'm getting a little bit bit, uh, preachy there, but you know, my day job is that of a preacher. So sometimes it kind of bleeds through. The main point is simply this. Conservative politics and positions don't always line up with what the Bible teaches, and Christians who are conservative politically should not view other people as the enemy. I suspect that saying things like that's going to lose uh, me podcast respect 
subscribers uh, probably receive me a lot of criticism and have people unfollow me on social media. I might even lose some real-life friends because of the position on guns I'm going to be articulating today. Uh, initially, that dynamic, that little bit of fear, has made me hesitant to record a podcast on this issue. Though I have addressed gun things in the past, tentatively, I kind of believe now is the time to be much bolder and louder, and I regret that it's taken me this long to do so. I believe more Christians should speak out against gun violence. I'm firmly firmly convinced that the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament of the Bible are incompatible with the guns part of the Jesus guns and babies mindset. I'm convinced by scripture that Christians should not be advocating for guns. If you choose to unfriend me or attack my position on this, that's fine. Just do it with a scriptural argument and not a smear such as, so do you want robbers to be able to come in and kill our families? No, I don't. Do you want the government to come and kill us all? No, I would prefer that not happen. Or do you want the Russians to uh, come and invade our country and do what they're doing in the Ukraine right now? No, I don't want any of those things to happen. I just do not believe Christians should put their faith in guns or swords to prevent all of those things happening. And honestly, you simply cannot articulate an argument from the Bible that a Christian should rely on their guns or swords for protection from thieves, a tyrannical government, or foreign invasion, because such thinking is just not in the Bible at all. You disagree? Well, fine. Prove me wrong. From the Bible. All right, number three, the Bible does not talk about guns, duh, but I believe we can still develop a good theology about guns regardless. The last book of the Bible was written in the first century, and the first thing that could even remotely be called a gun was something called a fire lance, and it was used in China roughly a thousand years after the last book of the Bible was written. Handheld guns, which were initially something like hand cannons, appeared in the 1200s, but they didn't look anything like what we think of as a handgun today. If you want to see a picture of it, uh, come check out our webpage, deepquestionspod.com. I've got a picture of an ancient hand cannon-like thing on there. It wasn't really until the early 1400s that an arquebus was invented, which does kind of look like a primitive revolutionary war rifle. The time discrepancy between the end of the New Testament and the era of guns means that there's nothing at all in the Bible that specifically mentions guns. In the same way, the Bible also does not directly and specifically address cocaine or heroin, nor does it directly talk about drunk driving or speeding, doesn't mention presidents, prime ministers, or pornography, or just war theory. The Bible doesn't use the words abortion, homosexuality, or racism. And yet, though those specific words don't appear in the Bible, God's position on heroin and cocaine and meth or whatever is quite clear. When Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It is right and proper to understand that passage as also applying to whiskey, vodka, beer, heroin, cocaine, etc., One may not say, I know that getting drunk is wrong, but snorting heroin is just fine because the Bible does not say thou shalt not snort heroin, right? We agree on this, I hope. 
The prohibition on getting drunk on wine applies to other ways of getting into an intoxicated or drug-altered state also. As such, a passage like 1 Corinthians 6.12 can be seen as addressing not only alcohol and drug addiction, but also things like pornography. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Similarly, Bible passages like Proverbs 21.1, which says, A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Those passages also apply to presidents, prime ministers, governors, mayors. So we can rightly say that the president's heart, whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican, is like channeled water in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. Finally, Though the Bible does not use the exact words or their Greek equivalent for abortion, homosexuality, or racism, the Bible very clearly speaks to all three of those issues. In that light, I believe it is fair and right and responsible exegesis or interpretation of the Bible to take what the Bible says about weapons in general, and maybe swords in particular, and apply that to guns. For instance, hypothetically, if the Bible said, thou shalt not stab thy brother with a sword, it would be appropriate and accurate to extend that teaching to also say, thou shalt not shoot thine brother with a gun. Now, if we are agreed on that premise, then I believe we will agree on my conclusions because, honestly, even though the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not stab thy brother with a sword, the New Testament is really quite clear on swords and weapons and fighting and things like that as they relate to Christians, and thus, Given that, the New Testament is also quite clear about guns as they relate to Christians. All right, number four, clarification on my thesis, which is Christians generally shouldn't be pro-gun. I am making a New Testament argument. If you object to my argument, object from the Bible. There's a great article over at the Gospel Coalition called How Christians Think About Gun Control. And that article, I think there's a video there. I didn't watch the video. I read the transcript. It's basically a moderated debate between Andrew Wilson and Bob Thune. If you disagree with my position, I suspect you'll find a kindred spirit in Bob Thune's pro-gun and pro-self-defense argument. Now, the biggest issue I have with Mr. Thune is that his argument is grounded in the Old Testament. Now, let me be clear. The Old Testament is the Word of God. It's God-breathed, and it is useful, as Paul says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. However, are we as Christians under the Old Testament laws? I believe it's the clear teaching of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament that we are not under the law anymore, but under grace. Now, this particular facet of our discussion is way too large to fully unpack here, so I need to share with you five foundational scriptures on this particular issue uh, as a foundation for why I'm going to be arguing from the New Testament and not the entire Bible. So we'll have a brief discussion about that, and if you're interested in going deeper, I have not done uh, less than three episodes on this podcast in the past on that issue of whether or not Christians are under the Old Testament law. And if you want to find any of those three episodes, just come to the website, again, deepquestionspod.com, 
look up the show notes for this uh, podcast, which is basically a transcript of what I'm saying right now, and you will find links to all three of those episodes where I talk in depth about why the Bible teaches that Christians aren't under the old covenant, but under the new covenant. And let me give you just a sampling of that. Here's five scriptures that discuss whether or not we are obliged as Christians to follow the law and the commands of the Old Testament. First, Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, Paul is saying, Jews and Gentiles have been brought together because God in Christ has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That doesn't convince you. Number two, Hebrews 8.13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Paul in Romans 6.14 says, Sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Bit longer of a passage, Galatians 3, 19 through 26, Paul again writes, Why was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. It's, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then, this is Galatians 3.24, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That's Galatians 3.25. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. One more. Hebrews seven eighteen through 19. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable for the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Well, finally, you're going to find in Acts 15 that the apostles meet to discuss this very issue. Should non-Jewish Christians like me and almost everybody that's listening to this podcast, and if you're a Christian and you weren't born in Israel, you're a Gentile, congratulations, I guess. I mean, I'd kind of rather be Jewish, but I'm not. Uh, I'm a non-Jewish Christian. Should non-Jewish Christians follow the Old Testament law? All of the disciples, the apostles of Jesus, gathered in Acts 15 to discuss this very question. They were led by the Holy Spirit to the conclusion that no, the non 
Jewish Christians should not be forced to follow the Old Testament law apart from four commands that remain binding. And you can read all about this in Acts 15, but the four commands are this. Number one, don't eat food offered to idols. Number two, don't eat blood. Number three, don't eat strangled animals. That's related to command number two. And number four, abstain from all forms of sexual immorality. Now we're going to do an episode in the future on those four commands and try to answer uh, why strangled animals were forbidden. And it makes sense when you read about it. But for now, I will simply note that these were the only four commands of the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit led the apostles to impose on non-Jewish Christians at the first apostolic council. Now, you might disagree me with me on all of that, but let me demonstrate specifically how that applies to the gun question. Bob Thune, the pro-gun argument guy I mentioned earlier, he bases his argument most firmly on Exodus 22, verse 2, which says, if a, thief is, if, if a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he's beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. You know, in other words, a Jewish person could beat a home invader to death and not be guilty of murder. In this command, Thune rightly sees a basis for self-defense, although I will note that when you keep reading to verse 3, it says if you kill a thief that breaks into your house in daylight, you're actually going to be guilty of murder, which is very interesting. Um, exit from that passage, Exodus 22, verse 2, Thune concludes, the Torah teaches if someone comes to kill you, kill him first. Now, actually, that's a few t steps too far from what Exodus 22-2 actually teaches. It doesn't say you must kill somebody that comes to your home. It says that you're not guilty of murder if you do kill somebody in your home and also they come at night. You are guilty of murder if you kill them in your home during the day. If we keep reading in Exodus 22, we're going to discover some other interesting verses. For instance, verse 16 commands that if a man sleeps with a woman outside of marriage, that man must pay her father money and be married to her. Or if the father says, no way, I don't want you to marry my daughter, the offending man is going to have to pay a full bridal price for his sin against that woman, which that would be an awful lot of money. Verse 18 says that all female sorceresses, uh, which I believe would include mediums and psychics, must be put to death. Verse 20 commands that all who sacrifice to other gods must be put to death. If you go back one chapter to Exodus 21.10, we find that a man is, is permitted, allowed to have more than one wife. And at Exodus 21.17, it is commanded that whoever curses their father or mother must be put to death. Now, are we obligated to live under all of these commands? I mean, should you and whatever city you live in march down to the local psychic's place and, you know, kill them? Well, I don't think so. I mean, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Just don't do that. Uh, but most apropos for our conversation now is Exodus 21, 23, where we find this command, which is uh, in the context of uh, talking about payback if somebody is injured in a fight. Verse 23 says, if there's an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. 
One way, no, we know that we are not under all of the commands of the Old Testament is the fact that Jesus directly supersedes this command in Matthew 5, 38 through 39, where he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Wow. Okay, so why is this all important for discussing guns? Because the Old Testament was written to the Jewish people, people who lived in Israel, ruled by kings and priests that were supposed to follow God's laws. Old, the Old Testament Israel was to be a theocracy, completely following God. The New Testament, however, was written to Christians living in a Jerusalem that was not at all governed by God's laws, but by the traditions of man, according to Jesus himself. And the New Testament was written to converted Jews and Gentiles who lived all across the Roman Empire, who themselves were living under a pagan government that was anything but a godly theocracy, much like the situation 99.9% of the world finds itself in today. We, at least we in America, we and wherever you're listening to this, we have listeners in, uh, I don't know, I don't know, 100 or so different countries uh, uh, in, the, in the last year. Almost none of you are living in a theocracy, but a democracy. We're not living under the Old Testament commands, which say that circumcision is necessary to please God, which say that uh you're not allowed to wear mixed fabrics, which says that there's certain forms of uh contact and communication that Jews and Gentiles can't have with each other. We're not living under those laws. We're living under New Testament commands, which demonstrate that those who trust in circumcision to draw close to God are, according to Paul, under a curse. Those who withdraw from Gentiles like Peter did, see Galatians, are acting like hypocrites and doing what is contrary to the gospel. And there's nothing at all in the New Testament that talks about what kind of fabrics Christians can wear. Thus, I'm firmly convinced that while the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is the Word of God, Christians are only under the New Testament slash New Covenant, and that has a huge bearing on our discussion of guns. Again, I've done at least three episodes in the, in the on this podcast uh, that you can probably, if you search in your podcast app, they're still available for downloading. Uh, one of them was called, Are Non-Jewish Christians Obli- Obligated to Follow All the Commands of the Old Testament? One of them is called, Is the Old Testament Law Obsolete? And one of them, uh, the third one is called, Are Christians Still Under Old Testament Commands? All of those have been recorded in the last couple of years. And again, you can find links to them on our website at deepquestionspod.com. Finally, number five the number five um, building block and clarification statement I need to tell you to surround my thesis that I don't believe Christians should be pro-gun based on what the scripture teaches. Number five, I'm fully aware that ultimately the gun violence problem does not lie in an inanimate object, but in the wicked and twisted hearts of human beings. Now, even if there was a magic way to vacuum all of the world's guns up, we know that humans will still murder each other and do violence to each other without guns. I do not lay the blame for gun violence at the feet of guns. Now, that said, 
Guns are undoubtedly and indisputably a force multiplier. And if you aren't familiar with force multiplier, uh, the term means uh, a force multiplier is an amplifier, a tool or factor that enables one to get more done with that tool or factor than without it. In digging a hole, a shovel is a force multiplier over just using your hands. When you go to the grocery store and you're Picking up things, a grocery cart is a force multiplier in terms of how much you can carry at a store. A Daniel Defense DDM-4 AR-15 style rifle is a force multiplier over a longbow or a 1763 Charleville musket rifle. An angry man with a grenade is far more dangerous than an angry man with an egg. Though I currently live in an uh, undisclosed part of California now, I spent the first 46 years of my life right in the middle of gun country, Alabama, roll tide. I was recently talking to a good friend who will remain nameless, who is a pastor in Alabama. He's also a gun owner. He is also concerned about the epidemic of gun violence in this country. and. Look, if you dispute that, that it is an epidemic of gun violence in this country, you need to know something. This is a big kind of rabbit trail here. Consider there have been more than 3,500 mass shootings in the United States in the last 10 years since the Sandy Hook maniac killed 20 children and six teachers. That is to say that over the past 10 years, we have had an average of more than one mass shooting event per day in the United States of America. And that number, as we already discussed at the top of this podcast, is increasing in 2022. So my Alabama pastor friend, he said this, he said, evil people are the issue. But then he quoted Proverbs seventeen twelve, which says, better for a person to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his foolishness. And then based on that verse, he asked a very insightful question. Why are we wanting the fools to be armed? In other words, why is it so easy for fools in the United States to get a gun? Or to expand on the question, why is it so easy for fools and abusers and those with mental health issues and those with anger issues and stalkers and, yes, even criminals, why is, is it so easy to get a gun in the United States of America? We shouldn't be arming our fools, nor should we be arming our people with anger problems, putting force multipliers in the hands of fools, ragers, abusers, and mentally ill people is itself foolish, and we're reaping the rewards of that foolishness. And yes, I also realize that a car, a truck, a knife, or a bow, or whatever, other things can be deadly weapons also. And you know what? When this country goes 10 years averaging one mass killing a day by car, knife, bow and arrow, truck, or whatever, then it's going to be time to talk about what we need to do in order to keep those things out of the hands of people with ill intent. Uh, but we're not there yet. We are there with guns. And it's weird to me that it's so easy in the United States for broken, angry, violent people to get their hands on weapons that can wipe out dozens in the blink of an eye. Charles Spurgeon is one of my heroes. And in a sermon preached in the 19th century, he compared loaded guns with quick-tempered people 
concluded that concluding that it is best to avoid both of those things. He said this, make no friends with an angry man. As well, make your bed out of stinging nettles or wear a viper for a necklace. Perhaps the angry fellow is just now very fond of you, but you beware of him, for he who barks at others today without a cause will one day howl at you for nothing. Don't offer him a kennel down your yard unless he will let you chain him up. When you see that a man has a bitter spirit and gives nobody a good word, quietly walk away and keep out of his track if you can. Loaded guns and quick-tempered people are dangerous pieces of furniture, says Spurgeon. They don't mean any hurt, but they are very apt to go off and do mischief before you dream of it. Better go a mile around than get into a fight. Better sit down on a dozen tacks with the points up than get into a dispute with an angry neighbor. In sum, I don't blame the gun. I blame the gun owner. But again, it seems to me quite foolish to have a society where it's very, very, very easy, relatively speaking, to obtain a gun. Now, when I say it's very easy to obtain a gun, I'll give you an example that just happened this week. The man who killed four and wounded several others in the Warren Clinic shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, bought his AR-15 style rifle at 2 p.m. on the day of the shooting, which began to unfold less than three hours after he purchased that gun. Even so, though I guess I'm right now touching on a political argument, um, at this point, we're going to move into a discussion of the primary scriptural reasons for my thesis, which, to remind you, is again, in light of the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament as a whole, it is incongruous that Christians should advocate for guns. Stated another way, the New Testament teaching seems to lead Christians away from gun advocacy rather than towards it. So those were five clarifications and building blocks that sort of led me to my primary thesis or point in this article, which I'm going to say it one more time, in light of the teachings of the Jesus and the New Testament as a whole, it is incongruous, incompatible that Christians should advocate for guns. Now, by the way, I'm not actually saying here that Christians should war against gun ownership or should Christians should overturn the Second Amendment. I'm very, I'm making a very tight argument, which is this. Christians should not advocate for guns. Now, here's the plan. Since I've been fairly long-winded so far, I'd like to make a beginning scriptural argument in this episode against gun advocacy, finish the episode, and then in part two, maybe even there's going to be a part three, who knows? I never know until I finish. I want to go much deeper into what the New Testament teaches Christians about swords, weapons, and self-defense. But before we close, Let's look at what I believe to be the most prominent passage in the New Testament that speaks to guns, which, as mentioned earlier, will on the surface talk about swords, which were contemporary with the first century AD, rather than guns which weren't invented for another 1200 years after the writing of the New Testament. 
The word sword, S-W-O-R-D, appears in the Bible approximately 400 times, about 392 times in the Christian Standard Bible and 408 times in the English Standard Version. In the Old Testament, a sword is quite often a sword, a bladed weapon that is used for stabbing, cutting, and slicing. In the New Testament, a sword can be a sword, but it can also be a metaphor, much like we see in a very famous verse, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, these metaphorical uses of the word sword won't be as instructive for us in building a theology of swords and weapons and ultimately guns. There are, however, several non-metaphorical uses of the word sword, and I'd like to close out today's episode by looking at one. In Luke 22, very curious exchange happens between Jesus and his disciples. We read about it in verses 35 through 38. Jesus said to his disciples, when I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now, whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, Look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. Well, look, on the surface, it appears that Jesus is telling his disciples to arm themselves. Indeed, I recently read an article from a police clergyman who I think loves the Lord that made the case that Jesus' commanding of his disciples to sell their robes in in order to buy a sword was a mandate for all Christians to carry a self-defense weapon. Jerry Falwell Jr., the somewhat disgraced former president of Liberty University, called for students at his school to carry guns in a 2015 address that was prompted by uh, another mass shooting event, which happened in uh, 2015, where a gunman killed 14 people in San Bernardino, California. Falwell spoke to the students at that gathering, urging them to be quick to shoot any school shooters that might show up on the campus of Liberty. When he was asked about his comments later, it kind of caused a ruckus. Falwell said this, It just boggles my mind that anybody would be against what Jesus told his disciples in Luke twenty-two thirty-six. He told them if they had to sell their coat to buy a sword to do it because he knew danger was coming and he wanted them to defend themselves. Huh, interesting. On the other hand, other Christians, such as our friend Charles Spurgeon, disagree. They see Jesus' mandate to the disciples to buy swords as maybe ironic, but definitely metaphorical. Along those lines, this is what Charles Spurgeon says. All has changed in the situation with the disciples. No one would entertain them. Everyone now would harm them, and they would be as men needing defense against deadly foes. He did not, however, Jesus did not, however, mean that they should fight with such carnal weapons, as we shall see immediately. It was only an intimation that they were now to be assailed by force. If they were to literally fight, two swords were not enough, 
but they were enough to express the Savior's idea. They were now to go out as warriors to conquer the world, and the swords represented their militant condition. One sword was rashly used by Peter, and his Lord told him to put it away to show that armed force is not to be employed. There was another sword, not then wielded, which typified the word of God with which the nations would be subdued. They, the disciples, would need to be on their guard against those who, in killing them, would think they were doing God a service. They took his language literally, and therefore they said, "'Look, Lord, we have two swords.'" I think, says Spurgeon, Jesus must have smiled sadly at their blunder as he answered, it is enough. He could never have thought of their fighting that he might not be delivered unto the Jews, since for that purpose two swords were simply ridiculous. They had missed his meaning, which was simply to warn them of the changed circumstances of his cause. But they caught at the words which he had used, and they exhibited their two swords. In another place, Spurgeon writes on this passage, A smile must have passed over the Savior's face as they saw how egregiously they had misunderstood him. He did not mean that they should literally carry swords, but that they should now have to go through an alien world and to meet with no friends or helpers. He evidently did not mean that they were to defend him with the sword, for two such weapons would not have been enough against the Roman legionnaires who were sent to seize him. How apt they were to misconstrue and take literally that which he was accustomed to speak in figures, just as, to this day, some people will have it that the bread on the communion table is Christ's body and the juice of the vine is literally his blood. Well, look, I completely agree with Spurgeon here, not simply because he makes a good case, but because of what happened shortly after this discussion between Jesus and the disciples. As you probably remember, the Romans, led by the traitor Judas, did indeed. They came to arrest Jesus, and upon seeing them arrive, Jesus said, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour, the dominion of darkness. That's Luke twenty-two fifty-two through 53. Now, I will also note a careful reading of what Jesus said earlier in Luke 22, 36 through 7 shows something interesting. Directly after Jesus says, whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one, he gives what appears to be the reason why he said what he said in verse 37. He says, I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was counted among the lawless. It appears that somehow, some way, the disciples carrying swords and perhaps Peter's act of slicing off the ear of the high priest's servant somehow made the disciples lawless. Well, anyway, the mob is approaching to arrest Jesus, and the disciples cry out to him, Lord, should we strike with a sword? And, you know, impetuous Peter, he did not wait for an answer, did he? He reaches out with his sword and he whacks Malchus, the servant of the high priest, on the side of the head, literally knocking his ear off. Now, I imagine that this was really quite unexpected. What's going to happen now? Will the 11 remaining disciples, armed with only two swords, stand and fight against a large mob armed with clubs and swords? Well, in this moment, 
I imagine everybody but Jesus is stunned. Looking at Malchus bleeding, looking at his severed ear laying on the ground. You know, in that couple of seconds, uh, what's going to happen? You know, really quickly, if something doesn't happen, that mob, having seen Peter do what he did, they're going to react to it, and they're likely to pounce and start beating the tar out of the disciples. So what is Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? If it is correct that Jesus was literally telling his disciples to buy swords for self-defense, as some allege, then Jesus probably would praise Peter for his bravery and call the disciples to stand up and fight, right? Think about it. In all of the history of false arrests and false imprisonments, the single most false arrest in history is about to happen. Phrased another way, the most innocent man that ever walked the face of the earth is about to be arrested, tried, and killed, which will constitute the single greatest injustice ever commuted, committed by human beings. If there was ever a just cause to fight for, this is it. Now, does Jesus command Peter and call his disciples to fight? No. He does He does one important thing, and he says two or three important things. Now, first, before anybody can move and cause this incident to turn into a big uh, Donnybrook or a fight, Jesus says, no more of this. That's Luke 22, 51. And in John 18, 10, I think it's verse 10, he says, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? And then Jesus directly says something profound to Peter, according to Matthew. We find it in Matthew 26, 52 through 53. Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And after saying that, Jesus touches the ear of Malchus and completely heals him. Now, friends, here we have a self-defense situation if there ever was one. We have a corrupt mob. Not really sure they were legally deputized, but they do. We do know they were sent by the governing authorities. Um, and here they arrive on scene to arrest Jesus unjustly. Peter defends his master. He strikes out at one of the members of that mob and Jesus quickly and powerfully stops any of that before it escalates. No more of this, he says. Put your sword away. I have to drink what the father has given me. And then, again, he says that powerful, profound thing. All who live by the sword will die by the sword. Let that sink in. All who take up the sword, says the CSB, will perish by the sword. Now, as we discussed earlier, I believe that in the same way we can apply Ephesians 5.18 to say, don't get stoned on cocaine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit and still be absolutely faithful to the word of God. We can also apply Matthew 26, 52 to our discussion here and say, all who live by the gun will die by the gun. Now, I realize Jesus did not tell Peter to get rid of his sword 
at least not in that moment, nor did Jesus or Paul or any other apostle, to my knowledge, ever forbid the owning of a sword. But how do you think Peter felt about his sword after seeing what Jesus did and hearing what Jesus said? Do you think Peter after this is likely to go home and post Jesus guns and babies on his first century Facebook page? Well, I'm being tongue-in-cheek here, but seriously, what kind of impression do you think that the disciples got about weapons from Jesus' words and actions at his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane? I would argue that all four Gospels conclusively demonstrate that Jesus was not pro-sword, warned against using the sword, even in a defensive situation, and therefore I conclude that he would not be pro-gun either, and nor would he want us to be pro-gun. And that, I think, is a pretty good place to finish this episode. And of course, I want to grant I have not proven my thesis yet. We've barely scratched the surface of it. There are many other teachings of Jesus and the disciples that I believe will apply to swords and guns and weapons and will ultimately demonstrate beyond a doubt that Christians should not be pro-gun, nor should we advocate in favor of guns. Now, before you send too many angry emails my way, please do listen to that second episode where we're going to continue this discussion. And remember that I'm arguing a very narrow thesis. I'm not stating that I believe Christians should never own guns. Maybe that's accurate. I'm wrestling with that question right now because I told you at the top of the podcast, I own guns. I'm not stating that I believe the Second Amendment should be abolished. I'm not a pacifist, and I'm not suggesting pacifism as a philosophy. I subscribe to just war theory. I am simply seeing a stunning problem in my home country, the problem of horrific, escalating gun violence perpetrated by evil people, and I am stating that the thrust of the New Testament teaching indicates that Christians should not be vocal gun advocates or vocal gun supporters, given that Jesus said, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Now, do you disagree with me? I'd love to hear from you. And you can leave your comments on a post on www.deepquestionspod.com, or you can message me uh, there as well. There's a way to contact me there, or you can find me on social media. I am Chase A. Thompson on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and probably a few other places. I don't check that much. C-H-A-S-E-A-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, I want to close out with a portion of John Piper, a man who I respect a great deal, his remarks on responding to mass shootings from a few years ago and the question of whether or not Christians should arm themselves with deadly weapons for self-defense. This is what Piper says. Jesus says that the moment of life-threatening danger that the disciples face will be their opportunity to bear witness, Luke 21, 13. It will be a moment for fierce, fearless stepping into heaven, Matthew 10, 28. A moment for enduring to the end and being saved, Matthew 10, 22. If we teach our students that they should carry guns, like Jerry Falwell Jr. tried to do, and then challenge them, let's teach them a lesson if they ever show up here, Do we really think that when the opportunity to lay down their lives for Jesus comes, 
that these same students will do what Jim Elliott and his friends did in Ecuador and refuse to fire their pistols at their killers while the spears plunged through their chests? Now, that's a great question. And the situation that Piper is talking about is, of course, the 1956 martyrdom of the Aachen Five missionaries at the hands of uh, the Wairani people who killed them for trying to share the gospel. These men, Jim Elliott and his friends, were killed by spears when they were holding loaded guns. They refused to defend their lives. And in doing so, they laid down their lives for the gospel. But they spared the lives of those natives, many of whom eventually came to Christ. Now, what's better, to shoot our enemies or to gospel our enemies? Something to think about. The next episode will be out, Lord willing, in the next few days. And then you can send me all the barbed emails you want to disagreeing with me. For now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Good day to you and Godspeed.